Many of us remember Vacation Bible School. We sang silly songs with elaborate hand motions. We memorized Bible verses. We drank little cups of juice and ate animal crackers. And depending on our age, we learned the stories of our faith through the cutting edge media of the day, from flannel graphs to puppet shows to well-produced videos of singing vegetables. But I think for a lot of people, this is about as far as we have gone in our exploration of these stories, particularly those in the Old Testament. And that's a problem. Over the next couple of months, we will be rereading some of the most celebrated biblical stories of our youth. But this time, we will be setting them in their proper historical context, which means that even though we may have heard the stories of Noah and Abraham and David and Jonah, we may have missed the point. I mean, they aren't really kid stories. So brace yourselves and break out the animal crackers. This is adult VBS. Okay, so this is week three of Adult Vacation Bible School, and we are continuing through our trek of the Old Testament, particularly looking at some of the old stories that are familiar to you. And this week I actually took to Facebook because when we're dealing with Abraham, there's a handful of stories that you could maybe um, bring to the table. Uh, I don't know how Vacation Bible School does it, uh, but one of the most famous, and hopefully this isn't one that gets taught at Vacation Bible School because the kids would lose, would lose their minds. One of the most notable stories about Abraham is Abraham and Isaac, uh, which is code for Abraham and the near sacrifice of his son, Isaac. Now, the thing that you have to know before we head into this story, and I'm not gonna, I'm not gonna overdo it. I tend to be pretty heavy when it comes to introduction, so I'm not gonna overdo it. If you would like to read Genesis 12 through 21 on your own time, you'll get a good bit of this. But the only thing I'd like to say to you is Abram, who becomes Abraham, is, is God's chosen individual through which Israel will become a nation. In fact, when Abram is called, it says, um, I will bless all of the nations through you and through your offspring. There's this big uh, promise with regard to Abraham and his kids. Now, the problem is throughout this narrative, Abram and his wife, Sarah, they struggle to have children, which leads Sarah at one point to even uh, give her handmaiden, Hagar, to Abraham to father a child because neither one of them are quite confident that the promises of God are going to come true. Now, for those of you that have spent time in church, you know that long, a long time down the line, Abraham and Sarah eventually do have a child. It's Isaac. He's the child of promise and the child that shows up uh, many years into the future from when God first announces himself to Abram, who would become Abraham. There's a lot that's going on with Isaac as this child who Abraham and Sarah have been looking forward to having for so long. Now you could do a lot more with the backstory to this. I would also commend you after we go through some of the stuff tonight to go back and read uh, Genesis 21 and the story of Abraham and Sarah and Hagar and Ishmael, that child that Abraham and Hagar had together. And it's a story of Sarah wanting to force Hagar and Ishmael out into the wilderness. And really these stories of Abraham 
and Ishmael and Abraham and Isaac, they sort of parallel each other, okay? So if you're looking for deeper uh, ways to get into the scriptures and to figure out what in the world's going on here, I would commend to you the entire Abraham narrative in Genesis chapter 12 through what we read today, but particularly looking at uh, Genesis 21. Okay, so our text for this evening, I'm actually gonna be reading out of my main man, Robert Alter's translation of the book of Genesis because I have found this to enliven my own personal study and I want to bring this to you. I think that he does a good job of bringing out a lot of the nuance of the Hebrew text. One of the things that you might pick up on very quickly is that everywhere throughout this story, it's and it happened, and he said, and he went, because in the Hebrew structure of telling stories, this is how they did it. It linked one event to the next event and on and on down the line. So you get this overwhelming number of ands that are linking these events together. Okay, one more note of preparation. I have also attempted to stylize the text on the screen to help bring out some of the literary artistry of this story, okay? You guys are on the edge of your seats. I can sense this, it's a good start, but we're gonna pause and we're gonna pray and then we're gonna get into it. God, thank you for this opportunity we have to be in this place looking at this sacred text which ultimately will point us to you and to your son through whom we have salvation. Allow us to see things that we might not have seen before. Allow us through the power of your Holy Spirit to illuminate uh, this text this evening and help us to leave here changed. Even with questions in hand, may we always know that you are bigger than our questions, you can handle our questions, and just like Isaac in this story, we have a father who is able to engage with us as we ask questions. God, we're thankful for you, we're thankful for uh, just the love that you have for us. We pray these things in Jesus' name, amen. And it happened after these things. Remember, there's a lot that goes on here with the these things. You could really almost track it from Genesis 12 up to the current. But in our immediate context, this is Abraham after having dealt with Hagar and Ishmael and sending them out into the wilderness, okay? It says now, and it happened after these things that God tested Abraham. And he said to him, Abraham, and he said, here I am. And he said, take, pray, your son, your only one, whom you love, Isaac, and go forth to the land of Moriah and offer him up as a burnt offering on one of the mountains which I shall show you. And Abraham rose early in the morning and saddled his donkey and took his two lads with him and Isaac, his son, and he split wood for the offering and rose and went to the place that God had said to him. On the third day, Abraham raised his eyes and saw the place from afar. And Abraham said to his lads, sit here with the donkey and let me and the lad walk ahead and let us worship and return to you. Now, just so you can be clear here, these lads are like uh, the servants within Abraham's household, the people who are accompanying him on the trip, and he's using the same language here for his son as well. It could just be a a denotation of how old um, Isaac is in this text, okay? And Abraham took the wood for the offering and put it on Isaac, his son, And he took in his hand the fire and the cleaver, and the two of them went together. 
And Isaac said to his father, Father, and he said, here I am, my son. And he said, here's the fire and the wood. Where's the sheep for the offering? And Abraham said, God will see to the sheep for the offering, my son. And the two of them went together. And they came to the place that God had said to him, and Abraham built there an altar. He laid out the wood and bound Isaac, his son, placed him on top of the wood on the altar. And Abraham reached out his hand and took the cleaver to slaughter his son. And the Lord's messenger called out to him from the heavens saying, Abraham, 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 Abraham. And Abraham said, here I am. And he said, do not reach out your hand against the lad. Do nothing to him. For now I know that you fear God and you have not held back your son, your only one from me. And Abraham raised his eyes and saw, and look, a ram was caught in the thicket by its horns. And Abraham went and took the ram and offered him up as a burnt offering instead of his son. And Abraham called the name of that place Yahweh Yireh, as is said to this day on the mount of the Lord, there is sight. Word of God for the people of God. Amen. What in the world is this story about? What did we just hear? Okay, you guys are churched people for a moment. Forget that. This is the first time you've heard this story from someone who is attempting to get you to trust God. And the first thing that you hear in this story is a depiction of God as one who is asking Abraham, his chosen person through which Israel will be born, to sacrifice the son of promise that he has been waiting decades for. And in just the short amount of time from when Isaac shows up in the text in the previous chapter to now in this story, God is beginning to move in a new and strange way that most people really struggle with if they allow themselves to enter in to this story. Now, Robert Alter and many people will, will want us to, to appreciate, for example, they will want us to appreciate the literary artistry of the text. For example, Alter says, the abrupt beginning and stark emotion-fraught development of this troubling story have led many critics to celebrate it as one of the peaks of an ancient narrative. It is so beautiful. I don't know how I can communicate this to you. I'm not gonna throw a lot of Hebrew up on the screen because that doesn't really do any of us any good. But in this text, the way that the author is bringing these pieces together, it is perhaps the height of biblical narrative. It's beautiful in the way that it is told, 
but it is so troubling in the content that it is uh, bringing for readers to understand. And it causes us to ask questions. I don't know if you can engage in some of this, but there's many questions that can be brought to the fore, especially when you, when you start looking here at Alter, he says, this is a troubling story that many readers uh, struggle with. We are attempting to understand what in the world is going on, and this was not lost on ancient readers. For example, we have this beautiful line uh, in the text, I believe it's verse two, where God says, take, pray. This is like an old English sort of rendering. So in the Hebrew, it has this particle that is difficult to translate, but really it is attempting to soften what is about to, to come. Uh, God, it's used of God only five times, I believe, in the entire Old Testament where he's attempting to soften what the readers are about to hear. It's like, take, uh, Abraham, just brace yourselves for a second here. Pray, I beg of you. I've got something big that I'm about to ask you. Take, pray, your son whom you love, Isaac. It's this beautiful layering in how the story is told, but when you start to think about the content, it is troubling, which has led uh, some ancient Jewish scholars like Rashi, who is a medieval Jewish interpreter in France, he's taking the words of the text and he's adding more context to it because of how troubling it is. So when Rashi is dealing with this, this text and looking back to some ancient Jewish in interpretation, it says, your son, and then it imposes this conversation between God and Abraham, your son. And Abraham says to God, well, I have two sons, Isaac and Ishmael. And God says to him, no, 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 your only son Perhaps this is because Ishmael is already gone and now Isaac is the only one. Perhaps this is because Isaac is the child of promise. But in this text here from, from Rashi, he, he brings more, um, more pathos to it, if you will, because Abraham says, well, this one is an only one to this mother and this other one is an only one to his other mother. In other words, your son, your only one, it's not really helping me here. And then God says to him, no, 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 it's the one whom you love. And Abraham very quickly says, well, I love both of them. And then God finally says, I'm talking about Isaac. This story, it's got literary artistry. It's beautiful, but it, it's troubling to the readers. What in the world is going on? Why in the world would God be asking this of anyone? And I don't know if you guys have read this story and you've struggled with it as much as me or as much as a lot of people who have renounced the faith. This is one of the stories that they usually go to to say, why would you serve this petulant, flip-flopping God who wants a kid to be sacrificed? And even if he doesn't want the kid to be sacrificed, he's asking for it to happen. How do you reckon that in your own mind? This is a huge problem for us if we allow it to be. Now, there's, a, there's different approaches we can take to the Bible, and one of the approaches that we can take to the Bible, I grew up with this approach, is, well, it says it right here on the page, I guess I'll take it for what it is, and I'll turn to the next story. But many of us, I would, I would imagine, many of us in the room here, we can't do that anymore. We've taken the red pill with Neo. That's a Matrix reference. Michael gets it, and I appreciate it. 
appreciate that. <laughs> We've seen behind the curtain, if you will, and we can't go back, and now we're asking questions of the text, and, and I've, I've jotted down some of my own questions, and I imagine you have some of yours too. How about this? Abraham has no response whatsoever. God says, listen, take your son, your only son, whom you love, Isaac, and take him to Mount Moriah, to the place that I'm going to show you, and there I want you to give him as a sacrifice. And the text basically just launches into the next, the next and, and it says, and Abraham rose early in the morning and packed up all his stuff, and away he goes. There is no dialogue between Abraham and God. Now, we champion this as Abraham is a man of faith. He's a man of trust. This is strange, though, because this is a different picture in the Bible of Abraham because just a few chapters earlier, when Abraham hears that Sodom and Gomorrah is going to go down, Abraham says, now wait a second, God, and how he's actually using this weird-to-translate particle. I pray, I beg you, God, what if there's 50 righteous people in Sodom? Will you, I, God, if you, if you killed everybody and there's 50 righteous people, I, I just, I'm scared about the rap that you're gonna get in the other towns as people are gathering near the water cooler. So let's just back up here, God. What about 40? What about 30? What about 20? What about 15? What, if there's just 10, God, if there's just 10. Like Abraham is bartering in the system for these towns where his nephew is residing. And when it comes to his own son, silence. That's a question. Is it not? At the very least, it's a question that we should be pondering. And also, this is, this is just a weird one that you guys might not think is, is worth talking about, but I'm going to talk about it. It says, um, he gets up in the morning, and he saddled his donkey, and he took his two lads with him. I don't know if that language is making you feel weird. Uh, his, his two household servants with him, the people that should be doing the work for him. Abraham's the one who's saddling the donkey, and as you'll see, he's also splitting the wood. What are this? The servants are doing nothing in this entire narrative. They're just there. But check this out, it's weird. He saddles the donkey, he takes his two lads with him and Isaac, and then he goes over and chops wood ostensibly in view of the two lads and Isaac. Now, I don't know if you know much about sacrificial system and, and what's going on. Why in the world would you split your wood before you go to Mount Moriah? Are there no trees in this area? And also, why would you do all this stuff and then bring the servants and Isaac over and say, hey, son, watch this. I'm gonna chop some wood. It's just strange, okay? Now this, again, it's not the strangest thing in this story, but it's one of the strange things in this story. Also, did anybody talk during this trip? They load the stuff, they're all on their way, and then three days later, they magically appear, and Abraham looks up and he sees where they're going. What in the world did they say to each other on the trip? We shouldn't psychoanalyze the text here, but if you know that you're going to sacrifice your child and you have a little bit of time left with them, how do those three days go? I was watching First Man last night on HBO. It's about Neil Armstrong, and uh, spoiler, he gets to the moon. <laughs> he walks on it, so that's good news. But it talks a lot about the family dynamic there, and before he's getting ready to leave for, um, I believe it was the Apollo 11 mission is the one that ends up on the, 
on the moon. Check me on that. I don't know. I was kind of in and out of sleep. Thank you. Um, teachers over here can, can fact check me on this. Uh, but it was the, the, the family dynamic between Neil and his wife and his kids, and he's trying to sneak out the door without talking to them before he goes on this mission because he knows there's a high probability he might not come back. He's watched a lot of his friends die in this space program because nobody knew what they were doing. If you ever think about us sending people to the moon, you can understand why some people think, I'm not so sure about that. Crazy. Just to be clear, I totally think they were there. I'm just saying that it's a, it's a, it's a preposterous thing that, that we have done. Kudos, America. That's great. But did anybody talk on this trip? Because it's like three days and then they just show up. The narrator's getting you to this point and then he's slowing it down dramatically, which hopefully you found in the reading. It's like act after act of what Abraham is doing. He's stretching out his hand. He's taking the cleaver. Like we have all this stuff that's, that's taking place here. Did Abraham know what was going to happen? Remember, he says to the lads, he says, you guys stay here with the donkey. Me and Isaac, we're gonna go worship and then we will be back. In um, Alter's translation, it says, and let us worship and return to you. But the NRSV really brings this out. We will come back to you. We will return to you. The, the Hebrew uh, verb there is shuv. It's, it's one where they're returning. We will come back to you. Did Abraham know what was going on here? Or is he just lying? Because when he's talking to these servants, these lads, you can't say, you guys stay here. I'm gonna go kill my kid. God told me to. It's fine. I'll be back. Don't tell Isaac. You know, like, it's a difficult text to understand what Abraham knows and what he doesn't know. Also, in this interchange, we have the first and only dialogue between Abraham and the son of promise, Isaac. I don't believe there's any other text in the Bible where these two are dialoguing to each other except on the way to Mount Moriah and the whole bit about the hand and the cleaver, okay? This is the conversation. Here's the wood, or here's the fire and the wood. This is Isaac talking, and note, he doesn't mention the cleaver. Dad, I see the fire, which might have been a flint stone or some sort of fire-making device. It's improbable they would have lit a torch and walked through the desert for three days, although I had that image in my mind until about 32 hours ago. (laughs) Now, I have a PhD in Old Testament studies. I've never thought about this before, but be that as it may. I see the fire. I see the wood. Let's skip over the cleaver because that's making me feel a little bit crazy, but where's the sheep for the offering? Also, can we pause here for a moment? You guys have never heard this term, right? Cleaver. It's always the knife. This term only appears in three texts in the Old Testament. One right now, one in Judges chapter uh, 19 into 20, I believe, where the priest chops his concubine up into different parts to 12 segments and sends her body out into the different tribes of Israel. And then there's one text in Proverbs that seems to be like a sacrificial type text. This instrument, it's not, it's not a Leatherman. It's not a multi-tool. It's used for slaughtering things. We don't think about that often, but in this passage, I think that this really brings out the oddity 
of what Abraham is about to do, even if he's looking for a sheep that God provides. Again, though, did Abraham know? Because when he responds to his kid, he says, God will see to the sheep for the offering, my son. Often, uh, excuse me, also note that this verb to see, it's all throughout this text. Jehovah Jireh, it doesn't mean God provides. It means God sees. And this, what we see in this passage is, God will see to the sheep, which is why this place gets the name Yahweh Yireh, because it's God sees what's going on here. God will see to the sheep for the offering, my son, or is he just lying to Isaac again? Because this isn't something you say, oh, I'm gonna murder you, come on, let's go. Sorry, you didn't like murder, that was a bit questionable. I'm gonna sacrifice you because God told me to, let's go. It's unclear here how Abraham might be massaging some of this conversation. Also, some people would say that there's an interesting way of rereading this passage. So instead of saying, God will see to the sheep for the offering, my son, as if Abraham is talking to his kid, this becomes evocative, which describes the offering. So it's read something like, God will see to the sheep for the offering. It's you. You are the sheep, my son. His story is laden with interpretive ambiguity. Now I'm gonna push back, I'm gonna push back on this, so just stick with me. I know that you guys are freaking out a bit. But what about Isaac? What's his deal in all of this? He's talking, he's old enough to say, like, hey, I see this stuff, what's the deal? Some Jewish interpreters believe that he's 37 years old because in the next couple of verses, his mom dies, and uh, the age of her subtracted from the age when they have Isaac is about 37 or so. <laughs> Quick math there. Uh, so he he could be an adult. Here, because when you think about how old Abraham is, he could call anybody a lad because he's like a million years old. He's not quite that old, but he's, he's old, Arthur, he's, he's old. Uh, but what's, what's Isaac doing in this story? Is he okay with what's going on? Is he a willing, compliant sacrifice? There's a lot of Jewish traditions where Isaac is the silent one who goes to the slaughter knowing what is going to happen and trusts his dad and trusts his God. Also, just I think last point here. No, there's two more. One, they keep talking about God will provide a sheep, you know? But then what do they find in the thicket? It's a ram, and we were so close, right? We were so close to everything like lining up. Why? In the, why? Why not a sheep, you know? It's just so close, but there's a ram there and, and it's not what we're talking about here. And then finally, let's talk trauma for a second because this story, I've, you know, I've had some dicey interchanges with my dad, but this one, we're good, right? We're not taking any three-day road trips anytime soon, he and I, but they're like, if you just place yourself into the, the, into the mind frame of, of Isaac here, it's difficult at best to see how that relationship is going to go much further. Uh, psychoanalyst Alice Miller says that this text may have contributed to an atmosphere that makes it possible to justify the abuse of children. Obviously, people misread the Bible all the time, but when you come to this passage and just look at a surface reading, it might open itself up to that sort of misunderstanding. Also, we have uh, the Danish philosopher Soren Kierkegaard, who says uh, of this passage, interpreting uh, what's happening, he says, stupid boy, do you think that I am your father? This is, this is Abe talking to Isaac. I am an idolater, 
This actually has some biblical precedent because in, in the book of Joshua, it refers to Abraham as one who has come from a land of idolaters before he is called uh, into God's line. He says, do you think it's God's command? No, this is all me. This is my desire. And then later, he reveals why this thought might be present in Abraham's mind, namely, Lord God in heaven, I thank you. It's better that my son believes me to be a monster than that he should lose faith in you. We have this tension here in the text and how things are to be understood. And I don't mean to burst any bubbles or any illusions that y'all are under that I'm gonna make this make sense for you tonight. I'm not. This is a troubling, a deeply troubling passage that the interpretive community has been wrestling with from its first moments in the Jewish community until now. Now, I would like to say this, as I'll say with most texts in the Old Testament, when we come to a reading of the Bible from a 21st century Western American pacifist, enlightened sort of mind frame, when we read these old stories, we're gonna see a ton of stuff that's questionable for us. And I think it's really important that we at least see that there's an ancient context happening in this particular story for us to go back and to take everything that we are and everything that we've learned and push it back and enforce it on the text. We're going to find ourselves in troubling territory because there's going to be a, a huge gap between the time, between the culture, between between original audience and our audience. So when we enforce this idea of what should be on the ancient text, a lot of times we're going to miss things. For example, the bit about offering your child. In our context, that's completely unheard of, right? That's the kind of stuff you get life in prison for. But in an ancient context, this is something that comes up quite often. Throughout the Old Testament law code, in fact, it says this is not what we do. Don't be like the people around you. Do not be like the followers of Molech who sacrifice their children. Some people would even say that if you look back on an ancient community and, and why sacrifices were offered in the first place, it's so dissimilar to how we live. When we need food, what do we do? We jump in our car, we drive to the store, we buy the food, we get back in our car, we go home and we put it in our refrigerator. For an ancient people, what do they do? They're dependent upon their crops and when the crops aren't flourishing, who do they begin to petition? The divine, whoever that might be. And there's stress to offer sacrifices and there's anxiety as to whether or not those sacrifices will work. So you're always going to want to up the ante with your sacrifices. And it might start small and nominal. And then when God maybe kind of blesses it, you start pushing the ante until finally you're, you're in a situation where you're sacrificing your children for your own livelihood. And this was happening around Israel at the time. And they kept hearing, don't do this. You are not this type of people. 
So in this particular passage, it might be that the text is pushing back against some of this normal sort of progression where it says, what kind of God would ask a man to sacrifice his son? The point of Genesis 22, according to some people, is not this God. Because when he ends up on the mountain and he ends up with his son on the altar, God says, do not do this. So some people read this as a polemic. It's pushing back against what other people think and what other people believe. So for an ancient audience, they would have maybe caught some of this resonance, but for us, we have no concept of that because that's not where we live and how we think and what we believe. We just see the atrocity that is God asking Abraham to maybe sacrifice his kid, and we don't understand the culture around and the context in which this original um, ask was made, that helps, we still are left with many questions, many doubts, many lingering theological issues. What I'd like to do over the next few moments, and I don't believe this is gonna take a long time, I'd like us to uh, just enter into the tension that's in this text between testing and providing between the testing that God lays out, which to me is the most troublesome part of this entire story, is that first line there where it says, God tested Abraham. How do we deal with that? But there's tension in the testing and the provision, and you can look at it in a couple different ways. One is Isaac is promised. They have been waiting for this child. God has appeared to Abraham and Sarah multiple times saying, it's gonna happen, it's gonna happen, it's gonna happen. They were laughing at God because Sarah had gone through menopause. It says that her parts are all dried up. That's a technical term there from the Hebrew Bible. Um, There's no way that this is gonna take place But then God comes along and and delivers on his promise. And then in the very next chapter, Isaac is to be sacrificed. And how do you bring those two together? That is something that's intention. Isaac is promised and it's through him that the world will be blessed. But then in the very next story, he's supposed to be the one on the altar. It doesn't make any sense. We also have the tension between Isaac is to be sacrificed. This is God saying, there's this test on Abraham uh, that we're gonna see what's going on here. But yet at the end of the story, God is providing the sacrifice. He's asking for something that he doesn't end up delivering on or allowing Abraham to deliver on. And there's tension there as well, a good tension, a healthy tension. And we're thankful that God does not allow this sacrifice to happen because then we would really be struggling But there's tension in this passage, so much so that Walter Brueggemann says, the expositor, that's me, that's us, the expositor must take care not to explain, it will not, it cannot be explained. What we're left with in this passage, and this will not help you if you're a questioning person, God is God. I hate that. But in this story, this is what we're we're left with. God is asking Abraham to do something, and in the end, he's not wanting Abraham to make good on that. We don't know why the original ask was, was made, other than what I'm gonna talk about here in a moment. We don't know why God steps in, other than it seems to be good with his character. But we have so many questions, and we can't over explain it because it's just mystery, it's just tension, it's just literature. 
And I don't mean that to discredit whether or not it happened. I mean, we have this one story about this one event, and that's all that we're left with. God is God. Now, how I want to look at this tonight, understanding that there's tension, there's lots of things that we can't address, and for some of you, that's just going to sit right here and you're gonna wrestle with that. How I would like to look at this is how I've heard a te this text and other texts being interpreted within the church that I think is highly destructive, and I would like to address it, and I would like us to move beyond it, because when we think about testing, and when we think about suffering in the American church, the way that this is often shaped for us or presented to us is, oh, anything that you're going through God has ordained that in your life so that you can learn something about yourself. God has set up this obstacle for you because God knows that you need this thing that will move you into a different plane of your faith formation. We look at this story and we say, oh, God is just attempting to really throw a curveball at Abraham to see what he does here. He's trying to teach Abraham something about Abraham's faith. It's interesting, though, because in this passage, it's not present. For example, one uh, interpreter is saying here that the, the point in this story is not for Abraham to learn something. He says the test is designed not to teach Abraham something, that he is too attached to Isaac or that Isaac is pure gift or that he must learn to cling to God rather than the contents of the promise. Experience, catch this, experience always teaches, and Abraham learns some stuff. Put that in your pocket, because there are things that you go through in your life, and you have the opportunity to learn something from them, but that's not the point of why you are enduring what you are having to endure. There is no divine sovereignty that is setting up these things in your life in particular, because he wants you to learn stuff. God can work through the tragedies and the sufferings that we we go through, you can learn things as the Holy Spirit is drawing you into that learning and into that reimagination and transformation. But God, do not, do not take this away. God is not placing these tragedies in your life to teach you something. If that's the theology, then we have a God who is ordaining rape, cancer, death, divorce, all things evil and all things tragic. That is not the God of the Bible. But yet that's the line that we hear. There's something in you that you need to learn and that's why you had the miscarriage. There's something in you that you need to learn and that's why your kid is sick. There's something in you, there's purpose in this pain, and God's placed it there so that you can learn something that's not in this story at all. Nowhere does the text say that he, Abraham, now trusts more in God or that he has learned a lesson of some sort. Rather, the test, it confirms a fact that's already there. Abraham trusts deeply that God has his best interests at heart so that he will follow where God's command leads. That's Terence Fretheim from his commentary on Genesis. You could even look at it this way. I'm gonna push some buttons. Are you ready? Are you all snuggled into your seat here? Because this next slide, it's gonna push you, but I want you to stick with me. 
if anyone is learning in this story, it's God. Look at the text. When Abraham is ready with the cleaver to sacrifice his son, the angel of the Lord, who is actually pretty synonymous with the Lord himself, says, don't reach out your hand against this boy. Note, everyone in the story here is referring to Isaac as the lad, except in the beginning when God refers to him as Isaac. But it says, don't reach out your hand against the lad and do nothing to him for now I know that you fear God. One more. And you have not held back your son, your only one, from who? From me. There's a synonymous relationship between this, this messenger and God. And in this story, as it's presented, the test is not so much for Abraham as it is for God to understand who Abraham really is. And in this story, what we find is God learning that Abraham trusts him. And throughout this text, the only thing that we see Abraham is one who's being entirely consistent to the promise that God has given him and how he is going to act within that promise. Brueggemann says, verse one, it sets the test and it suggests that God wants to know something. It's not a game with God. We usually think that this is the case. God says, I'm gonna test you, Abraham. I already know how it's gonna turn out, but I need you to figure out how much you trust me. I need to figure out if you're in or if you're out, Abraham. But in this story, it moves us away from that. It's not a game with God. God genuinely does not know, Brueggemann says. And that's settled in verse 12 when, when the author says, now I know. How's this sitting with you? Are the buttons being pushed and you don't know what to do with them? Hang on. And if you have an argument to be thrown, make sure we're throwing it at the sacred text that we all say we read together, okay? Brueggemann continues, there is real development in the plot, the flow of the narrative. It accomplishes something in the awareness of God. I love this line, you won't. It says, he did not know, but now he knows. In this story, what do we do with that? What I do with that is I encourage us to live in light of the beautiful truth that God is not attempting to screw up your life so that you gain knowledge. Now, there are tests that we go through. There are hard diagnoses that we have to hear from medical professionals. There are hard um, experiences that many people, maybe even many people in this room have gone through, whether it's abuse or something maybe even more uh, traumatic. There are things that we go through and those things usually are tested within relationship. What we learn from this story is when the stuff hits the fan in your life, are we going to double down and trust that God is good, that God weeps with those who weep, that God mourns with those who mourn, that God rejoices with those who rejoice, that God wants our very best 
but knows that there's jacked up free agents in this world that will do all sorts of things contrary to God's heart. When those things happen, do we say, I can trust God and the love that God has for me, or do we turn God into the author of all things tragic and say, screw you, I'm out. This is what this story seems to be about when the stuff hits the fan, whether God knows it or not. Will the actions of our life prove our faithfulness and trust in the ultimately good God? Or will our actions show people who break away and no longer trust in that relationship? Your pain is not a game meant to teach you something. Are there things to be learned in your pain? Absolutely. But it's not placed there so that. Last thought here. With regard to this tension and testing and providing, I would be remiss if we did not talk about the fact that in this story, we have Abraham being asked to offer his son, his only son, the one that he loves, it's Isaac, and for Christians not to see how that story culminates because when we read the Old Testament, we say, how dare you, God? How dare you ask this question? But in the New Testament, how this comes to its fruition is we have Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane praying and sweating so profusely that it's like blood, wanting this trial, this testing to go away yet ending up on a cross to put death to death and sin to death and evil to death and therefore allow us to experience life and hope and to become the source of our trust. I know that for us in this room, we have faced things. We have experiences that we've had to figure out what in the world is going on and how God fits in to those things. My hope tonight is that through this weirdo story of Abraham and Isaac, we can be pointed to the God who does not withhold his own son for the good of the world and for our life and for our hope. When the tragedies come in your life, and they most certainly will to some degree, are we able to look back to the cross and the empty tomb to double down and say, I will trust you? Or in fear, do we back away and walk ourselves out? If you've been in a situation where you've thought that God is, is bringing judgment upon you, if you've been in a place where you think that some of the things in your life go back to this divine plan where God is out to, to screw you over, my hope tonight is that you maybe see a different way of thinking about the, some of these events. That God is wanting us to, to place our trust in him, to be aware that he's not the one that's placing these things in our paths that he's not the agent inflicting sickness and death and abuse. Rather, he's the one who is asking us through all of it to trust and to trust in what he is doing 
and to trust in the perfect and beautiful work of his son, Jesus. Thanks so much for listening to this episode of TRP's weekly podcast. If you live in or near Salisbury, Maryland, come join us for one of our Sunday services. We'd love to meet you. If you're interested, you can get more info on our website, restoresby.org, or on our Facebook page, facebook.com slash restoresby. If you're a regular listener, thanks for coming back. If you've benefited from what we do and would like to support us, you can share all your kind words and good vibes with the world by rating us on iTunes. Or if you're so inclined, you can give financially at give.restoresby.org. We'll see you next week.